Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast. Sincerest apologies for the couple of month delay in putting up a new podcast. I was exceptionally busy with two different TV shows, and I have no excuse other than I could not find the time to get organized. I didn't have a minute to breathe, but we are back now, and we are back with a bang. Our first podcast of 2017 with the great Tommy Tiernan. Without doubt, one of Ireland's greatest comedians. When I first started doing comedy, I was in awe of Tommy, a huge fan. Uh, I watched his comedy uh, with the eyes of a student, uh, a sort of an uh, unofficial mentoring. I don't think Tommy was aware that he was mentoring me, although he was quite generous with his time in the early days of my comedy career and gave me uh, gave me a lot of encouragement. Uh, I think he saw something in me, perhaps. But anyway, long story short, uh, in the early part of my comedy career, uh, I was definitely in awe of Tommy. So it was a great honor to be able to interview him uh, all these 20 years later since I saw him first. Well, just about 20 years later since I saw him first. And we had a great chat, largely about the process of writing and uh, a little bit about parenting, as as I love to discuss. I have to live... Uh, I have to live vicariously through other people in terms of parenting. And uh, yeah, it was a nice chat. Get back in the groove for 2017. Nothing too heavy. I was in Galway. Tommy was in Galway. So we had a chat in my hotel room. We put the do not disturb sign on the door of my room. And myself and Tommy had a private hour and 10 minutes together. And now, without a single edit on this interview, I'm not touching it. I'm not touching a piece of it. Please. Enjoy my chat with Tommy Tiernan. Desi B. When I started comedy, you were my idol. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I learned all the tricks in the meantime. Man. It's funny, I was just thinking, coming over, walking over the bridge to talk to you today, that um, you, you would be one of my reference points. First of all, two things. That show, one of my, one of my favorite shows I've ever seen of any comedian ever was the show you did in the King's Head Oh, I remember just you were there, Just after yeah. The Traveller. Was it just after the tra- your week with The Travellers? I, I don't know. I guess I was working on the lot. I don't know yeah. what I was doing then, but God it was almighty. a work in progress anyway. It was, it was uh, I'd never seen stand-up like it. And I haven't seen any stand-up in Ireland like oh, it Jesus. since. Jesus. Oh. Because it was, <laughs> i tell you why, because it was, it was dealing with stuff that was important without being, without trying too hard. I was blown, blown away by it. No, I remember at the time you, yeah. you were quite... Uh, I was stunned, actually. You were quite. Uh, it was important. Promising me at the time, which I was happy with. Um, and the other thing I d- I do now frequently, say if I'm about if, if I'm thinking of a television thing or if uh, if stuff like that comes up, 
I always say to myself, if Desi B was doing it. Shut the fuck up, man. I'm Shut up. I haven't finished a sentence. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I just, I was getting uncomfortable with the praise. Go ahead. The, the, the sentence would be that if Desi B was doing it, would I watch it? And so say I'm, say I'm, say I'm, say I'm about to do something. I've come up for an idea for a television show. So I run the thing by my head. Say with, with the improvised... Yeah, I did, in fairness, I did see a quote where you said, if Ardler Des Bishop was doing it, would I watch? I saw a yeah. quote in a paper where you were saying, like, why would you do the improv thing? Yeah, so with the, with the, with the improvised tour of, of Europe, so okay, if Desi B was doing this, would I watch it? And the answer was absolutely. So, and if, if the answer is no, I wouldn't watch it if Des was doing it. I have to check my reasons for doing it because then often, well, maybe tell me your reasons for doing this are more ego than... Art and I don't mean art in a. Um, yeah, because I can assure you, it wasn't always art for some of my decisions. <laughs> some no, 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 of it definitely was ego. No, no, no. But you just for it's nothing to do with you, really. It's no, no, I know, it, I know, it, I know exactly. It's, what it's you're more saying. to do if another if another comic was doing this type of work, would I watch it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and if the answer is no, I wouldn't. Well, then why am I doing it? Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. Th th then there's no point in me doing it, you know. Um, but anyway, that, that's I. I that's what I think I was walking over here this morning going, I have to tell him that. Oh, thanks. Well, I wasn't going to talk about this straight away. But we might as well talk about it now since we're sort of talking about our own connections. But I, I actually can remember the very first time I saw you, which was uh, summer of 1997. You were hosting the Irish Heats of the So You Think You're Funny competition. You had won the So You Think You're Funny the year before. Yeah. And you were the sort of upstart of Irish comedy. All the wow. Well, you know, the, all the Dublin comedians were like, wow, this guy. You know? Well, you know, in truth, back then, in say 1996, uh, there was actually Irish stand-up was in a good place back then. Yeah, it was a bit of a boom for sure. Father so, Ted energy. So we went over to Edinburgh for that competition, and um, so I came first. Jason second came second. Patrick McDonald. No, no, John Henderson. John Henderson came third, and the kind of and kind of Patrick came fourth. But I think we all had a sense that if Mark Doherty had gone over, he would have won it. Yeah, because he was something special. He was just brilliant, you know. So there was a real. So back then there was a real. Um, uh, there was a kind of a. You could call us the class of '96 or something. Yeah, yeah. There was yeah. a kind of a bubble of stand-up that happened. So you you probably came just after. Just that. after that. But um, the gig in question, you were wearing shorts, and I can actually remember guys like John Henderson at the side, kind of going like. This guy doesn't give a fuck. You know, he, here's was all these shorts. Yeah, you were wearing shorts. You're up there ripping it. And everybody was in awe of you. And you came, you didn't come out of oh, the. Oh, I'm wrong. Des. You didn't come, Shut the fuck <laughs> up. It's the same. You didn't come out of the. You know, you didn't come out of that Dublin circle, you know. Well, no. And that's another thing that I'm kind of grateful for is that I've never felt as if I've belonged to any scene. Yeah. So I've never been part of the Dublin scene. And I never was part of the London scene. So I've always felt. No, there was. I had a scene with Jerry Mallon for a while. <laughs> it was the Tom and Jerry scene, <laughs> and that was wild enough. Like, uh, but only yeah. Jerry Mallon could think you're selling out by doing a fucking in conversation with chat show. It's like she's most people sell out. They do an ad for fucking Calvin Klein, but you're a sellout for chatting to people on the telly. Um, so I, yeah, I've, I've always been grateful for that. Actually, you yeah, know, for that I, and the, the the fact that you kind of developed on your own. Well, also as well that you're you're never involved in the politics of anything. Mm. Mm. So you never because I wasn't hanging out with comics. You you never got to be inv involved in who's bitching about who or yeah, who's sure. fighting with who or 
you know, or you kind of oblivious. I remember, like the, say in ninety six, not ninety six, ninety seven, going up to Dublin, and having nowhere to stay that night. So this is a gig called the City Arts Centre. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that gig. We used yeah. to run between like twelve and two on a Friday or Saturday night or something, and I'd have nowhere to stay. So I would do the gig, and then I'd walk the streets till about five and then go to uh, Houston Station and there was a Galway train that left about 8.30 or 9 but they'd open the doors around 5.30. <laughs> I see you get in the train and go to sleep. So I get in the train about 5.30 and I'd and sleep down until it took off. So that's how much of an outsider I yeah, was. Yeah, you genuinely were. You didn't even have a place to stay with no, the lads. No, um, And yeah, that, that, that was, a, I've always felt that was a kind of a, I suppose once you start taking pride in something, then it stops working. Then there's something else going on. Then it's a pose. But I've always felt kind of glad that uh, I was never connected too much to the, to any scene, really, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, the reason why I brought it up is because about a year ago, I was going through some of my old material, looking for clips, you know, to just yeah. put on Facebook, you know, just random stuff from my yeah. first couple of DVDs. And, I, you know, you look back on yourself. I hadn't looked at it in 10 years, and I was like, Jesus, I used to watch a lot of Tommy at this time. Because I could see me trying to, not, not trying to do exactly the same as you, but, but looking all, back in the distance, I was like, wow, I used to watch a lot of Tommy around this time. I could see the cadence. I could hear the cadence. But we all do that. I mean, we all, like Michael Harding, I know that I, uh, every time I hear, if I do something with him, I know for six months after that, I'm impersonating. He's, he's in your head. Yeah, and you just kind of, I think you, in your head, you're all, you're, you're, a kind of ghost dancing some other comic but to the viewer that they would f might find it hard to see the connection but i think we all do that we all go to like uh, starting off i just it, i just wanted to be dennis leary i just really yeah he was your guy well because because no cure for cancer came out was in, huge in the mid 90s and that was like even more than bill hicks in a way like dennis leary was kind of um had made it and Bill Hicks was kind of kind of underground. Well, I actually didn't find out about Bill Hicks till I was doing comedy. Oh, then. Yeah. Like, people say they're inspired by Bill Hicks, but I didn't get into it until afterwards. I was yeah. inspired by Eddie Murphy or whatever. Yeah. Bill Hicks came when I got a knowledge of comedy. So we all, we all start doing impersonations of yeah, other people. Yeah, looking know. at people, yeah. And it, it never, it's always, I think it's always more, it's obvious to us, like, if someone goes to see, if someone went to see you 10 years ago, and went, oh my God, it's like, no one ever said or would ever say, oh, it's just like an American Tommy Tiernan. It's so obvious. No, nobody ever <laughs> said that, but I can see it when I watch. Yeah, but it's, it's, I don't think that's, that's the, that's the kind of stuff we have to put up with. So I would, I'll work for a while and, I, and I'll come off stage one night going, I'm just impersonating Dylan Moran. That's all that was. I'm just impersonating him. And you say to somebody else and they go, nah. I have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. So yeah. it's all, we're all vulnerable to influence for but sure. But on the flip side, I do get inspired when I watch other people and I don't mind if I hear a bit of it in myself because I think, oh, they've, they've given me something. I don't mean material, I mean actual. Yeah. Like something, something gets in you and it... I get more you. disheartened than inspired. Really? But I think it's, it's ultimately probably has the same effect. Oh, you mean disheartened in the fuck, I'm not as good as this guy? Yeah. Oh yeah, well, when Dylan, we all get that. <laughs> That's a common then, feeling when you watch him. And then... I, but not even with Dylan. I've had it with, like the last person I had it with was probably with Al Porter. And before that I had it with Bernard O'Shea. 
But the energy? Or you just, you see something and you kind of go, what it makes me do is go back to the drawing board. Mm. And kind of, I always have this thing, if somebody else is doing what you're doing, there's no point in you doing it. So it, it makes you refresh. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of go back. Okay, well, I remember looking at Al and he was doing kind of, it was, it was energetic and it was religious. And I was kind of going, all right, well, there's no point in me doing that stuff because Al's doing it already. I remember seeing Bernard O'Shea and he was doing really brilliant stuff about drink and babies. And I was going, he just has that, that's brilliant. There's no point in me. It was a style-wise thing with Bernard. You know, uh, I remember, you know, going to see, when I saw that show in the King's Head, I, I remember thinking, well, that's that. Take. That's Traveller's Done. Yeah, that's the Traveller's <laughs> Done. You know what I mean? So Damn it, it. It's, all, it's really, all these things feed into you, you know, of, ah, I've got to stop, got to start again, got to reimagine it, got to, and even though it's always a bigger thing in your mind than it is in anybody else's, and it's always, the, you know, the change you make might be minuscule, but it gives you enough. But the whole thing doesn't stick, I think. I think some of that, like it's a big feeling at the time, but yeah. I do think it fades. I don't think it completely washes away the, that subject matter from your art. No, it doesn't. You just kind of, uh, maybe maybe the technique is just to be depressed for a week and then just do what you do anyway. Just do what the fuck you do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I haven't seen your last show, but my, my buddies have all gone. They're all guys in their like, late 30s, early 40s, and they're loving the stuff about kids. And I haven't seen it, but I was thinking this is round two now for him because I remember the putach and all that stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. And now you've got a whole second family to talk about. Yeah, it should be. I, you know, I sometimes think with stand up, it's you know, if I was to design a set list and maybe at the start of a show, I kind of at the start of this show when I was trying to write it, I had a list of things. Okay, mm. I'd love the show to be about this. Like I had this notion that I was going to base the show on Ulysses by James Joyce. Um, and that's uh, a lofty notion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you should see where it ended up. <laughs> uh, and so, so I started off with that as a, as my as the beginning. So I had that framework in my mind. So I read half of Ulysses. I got um, uh, it got it on audio. Li listened to it driving around. Read all these notes on Ulysses wrote all these things based on the framework of Ulysses. And then, you know, so you, you might start, if, so if I was designing a set. So you're thinking of it in terms of dialogue, yeah? I'm thinking of it in terms of themes. And the, the great theme of Ulysses, one of the great themes is that it was the first kind of stream of consciousness work where James Joyce, because he put it in a book, now said everything is permitted. So you could talk, women could talk about having a poo men could talk about masturbating. Uh, you could talk about just anything because Joyce put it in the book. And that was what made Ulysses so scandalous was because it, that had never been done before. Mm. Um, so I started off with that framework, right? With that, that's what my show will be about. So I did about three or four months work on that and then I did a month of show. When you say three or four months work, you mean writing? Writing notes, okay. ideas and notes. Um, and then I said, okay, let's take all these notes to the King's Head. And I did a month in the King's Head of lunchtime shows trying to, and none of it worked. <laughs> yeah, it's just, none of it. As an exercise, it was a waste. Of time, completely. I mean, it, got, <laughs> it, it gave me something to do during the summer, but it really 
was a like just, a model airplane, a bit of a hobby. It just didn't work. Yeah. So, what happens is that I find is that you stand up in front of a crowd, and what dictates the set list for me is what the audience find funny, and it's an act of desperation. So if I start talking about one of my kids and they start laughing, that's in the set. You know, if I start talking about you know poo or Afghanistan and they start laughing, that's in the set. Yeah. So it's not as so to end up talking about my kids again is not ideal. I don't really want to. I no no no. I I, I no, no 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 no. What, what I mean is that is that I come to the show with my intentions. Yes. The audience come to the show with their expectations. And this third thing is created, which is the actual stand-up material that happens because the, the first two come together. It's yeah. not something I can decide. And, and, and acts that I go to see that have this agenda bore me. Because I often when you say an agenda, you mean it's, it, they, they, have they, it all stick, it, yeah. they have the show worked out before they meet the audience. There's no vulnerability in the creation. They write the show; it's done and dusted, presented to the crowd, take it or leave it. And I, so, I sometimes find that stuff is too predictable, and it's almost like it's kind of like say you're going on a blind date, and you've you have all the questions listed out in your head beforehand, and you know, you've, not only do you have the questions mapped out, but you have all the subjects you're going to bring up mapped out. So you meet this girl. Hey, how you doing? So what do you think of X, Y, and Z? And she's there trying to chip in with, <laughs> and you don't, just care. Wait for you. <laughs> you don't care. You go, yeah, whatever. Anyway, this is what I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes for a less interesting date. Sure. But I mean, that's the, the connection with you and the audience has always been part of it. You know, this sense of there's something more going on than just you making people laugh. Well... And that's because I can't, m maybe the show doesn't happen until I meet them. Yeah. So I'm entirely dependent on them but for do you, do you the think, material in a sense. Yeah, but do you think you get to a better place because you have the lofty ambition at the start? I'm, just Ulysses is one example, but do you think it gets to a better place because you try to make it this or actually that's irrelevant? No. Like I, what I mean is when you meet in the middle somewhere, does, does that make it a better show or would you have just been better off going... I'll go to the king's head and figure out what the fuck I'm going to talk about. Maybe better. I should have been that the whole preamble wasn't worth it for sure. Um, but you, 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 you sure. have done some weird risks over the years. So I, I, I'm not going to get it to the improv show. Everyone loves fucking talking about that shit. It's like a worthy exercise. But, but well, I remember, like I said, if Desi B was doing it, yeah. would I watch it? The answer is yes. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone to fucking Europe. I'll tell you that right now. I might have done it in fucking Longford. But uh, uh, no, uh, but I remember another one that I thought didn't work, even though the show was great. But you yeah. had the. What was it? The wino. Do you remember the wino? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was another one. You know, great show. And then at the end, you had this kind of like this journey thing. And it was like. That's funny, you know, because I, I, I had somebody come up to me and said they saw that and they saw that. And that was what prompted them to come. Is that right? So it's funny people. In different yeah. You have to be really careful with that stuff, you know, with. The, um, it is all about taking risks, I think. And even though. say So now that I have a, a show that I can tour. I'm looking to change it all the time. But I'm not looking to change it from the perspective of sitting in my shed by myself doing the Ulysses thing. It's almost with a not with an like I'll, I have a drive today to Enniskillen and I'll try and think if I can get one idea for the show tonight that'll do me. Freshen it up. Yeah, one idea, one new idea. 
and that can really it's amazing because the you know i because i work hard like i do three nights a week every week um and it's amazing even just a new i one new idea is enough to freshen up yeah make it make show. it all worth it you know um for you for totally so relevant to the audience in a way y yeah but f but it, it gives me it gives me that little kind of makes me a bit giddy before i go on and it also adds an element of freshness to it that probably infects the rest of the show yeah you know, and so. do you think you get to a stage because i know this is happening to me where actually it's just the gigging is so much fun that you could just keep doing it for an ever, forever and forever like basically what i mean is i i have got to a stage now where actually just the the fact that i'm on stage and able to talk about whatever i want is just so entertaining whereas years ago it was all about getting to a place so you're gigging all the time now do you just love it no or you don't i go through phases of it there, yeah. there are times when it's really hard and a, a phase for me lasts i don't know two months maybe three months so you go i go through two or three months of not enjoying it oh of, really yeah. yeah of working and finding a real struggle and thinking the show is terrible and gone stale yeah and then i go through three months of of it's a delight so it's never it's never fixed whatever situation i'm in always feels long term but it never is but if you're if you're gigging for 11 months of the year i suppose you, ha you, you know you have to expect that really don't you, you have yeah, to expect yeah, yeah. that there'd be phases um but I, I get very despondent sometimes with the show like down and dark and you know i do a show and i just want to be in i remember i was doing a show with um Ardlo Hanlon years ago we did uh some stuff in New York together way back you know and I remember not understanding what he was saying to me at the time like not appreciating it and he he may may this was 97 98 may have been a phase he was going through and he mightn't feel like this at all now he said to me his favorite moment uh of being a comedian was walking off stage after <laughs> the gig. So <laughs> that's why he did it. <laughs> I could, but with him, I can understand that because he was a bag of nerves before gigs. You know, man. and I was incredulous. Because back then, I was kind of going, no, man, it's you'd live to play <laughs> under the lights. Like, that's what we do. And But I've had that experience recently of, oh, yeah. of checking myself before. I'm going, what am I looking forward to? And if if it natu if it spontaneously arises that I am naturally looking forward to walking off the stage at the end of the show, then I know I'm in a a place I have to get out of. Yeah, but I, I but I can completely identify with that feeling. But on the flip side, we all do. You know? Yeah, but yeah, but the flip side is then that you can't get me off when the energy kicks off. So I only have that before. I never have it like oh, on during. the stage. All right, okay. Wow. I've had the feeling where it's like, fuck, man, just get this, you know, just like, yeah. hopefully this gig is good enough that nobody complains. Yeah. I'll get the fuck out of here. I'll get back to Dublin. Yeah. But then, like, you know, you, know, you finish, you on? come on for an encore, and then you're like, what do you guys want to talk about? Like, I have no desire to walk so off the stage. I, so Aiden's waiting to fucking drive back to Dublin, and I'm like... Are you in a... Would you say right now that you're in a kind of particularly creative phase? Yeah, I am. Like, every show is like... That's uh, brilliant. Wow. Every show... But that's just because sometimes I do these very restrictive shows, like show about my dad, show about China... Whereas the last two shows have been... Co oh, and I did that fucking drumming show, which was like just too restrictive altogether. Right. The last two shows have just been talk about whatever. 
That's great. And I was gigging in New York where you're back in the comedy clubs and you're just fucking hammering out. And then suddenly it's just like, oh man, I just... So are they, do you reckon the comedy clubs in New York are less discursive? You're less able to kind of uh, improvise and talk to people than you would be in a room in Galway? Well, it's funny you bring this up. That's something I want to talk about, but I'll answer your question first. The thing I find the best about the New York comedy clubs that I love is just that energy that I think you stop feeling when you get to like the phase that we got to in Ireland where you're just doing your own shows. Yeah, for sure. Which is just that like anonymous crowd just loving you. Yeah. Winning them over. And it's just a different feeling. It's only 15 minutes too, so you can come at them like yeah. a machine gun and just leave the place I don't know. It's just a different energy. Yeah. And that gave me a bit of a love back for the thing. Which wow. Is like, oh, yeah. Fuck. I forgot. This is, I used yeah. to just love fucking ripping the shit out of it and walking off to like the sense of a high five. Plus, you get to talk to everybody afterwards. Yeah. You know, I don't mean like because Louis C.K. is <clears throat> there. Dave yeah. Chappelle's there. That's one side of the cellar that's exciting. That's very inspiring to watch those guys. But just the other comics. Yeah. Talking about your material, seeing their material. All that is just makes it a bit more fun. It, it's theoretically though as well it's it would seem that it's, i know the, the thing of going out in front of people who don't know you and uh or who don't know that you're going to be on maybe and just kind of being well, brilliant they don't know me and yeah. in the new york case it's just i'm just but isn't also isn't it also like those clubs also because of the the casual setup of them they're in bars people are drinking there's waitresses walking around yeah. there's other cars they also offer a platform for experimentation and weirdness if you're only on for 15 minutes um whereas i think that that when you start doing theater shows in ireland and people pay 30 quid a ticket mm. and there's a huge number of them uh, they come with a weight of expectation yes well and that's the question i want to ask you the fame the expectation the sense of status in ireland do you find sometimes that it's like stifling or causes you to censor yourself no never no uh i find it exciting actually um, but I because what I what I feel when I'm on stage in New York is I can say more here without fear of them judging me, them saying, "Oh, he's a guy that's like that." All right. Now that's me. Now I'm not. I'm not putting yeah. that onto you. No, I I I I fantasize about doing. I, you know, I suppose everything is a phase, isn't it? That you kind of. I'd l I'd love to do a. Because it seems to me there's no pressure on those comedy club gigs in New York. No pressure. And I, I mean, I there's pressure to just to that. establish yourself. But once that's done, then the pressure eases. I, I, yeah. And you're doing five a night. I think they're great. I think they're, they're... Oh, it's great. I love it. They're fertile places for the imagination. But I definitely you know. talked about... I was looser, particularly around stuff like sexual stuff. I'm like, of course, I've talked about sex in Ireland before, but there's a freedom there to talk about it further, which gives you the confidence. But I did take that confidence back to Ireland. I talked about it in Ireland, and it's appreciated. Yeah. But I wouldn't have been liberated only for I stepped out of it and realized that this is the... T well, I mean, it came from experience. Like, yeah. What have you done with your life the last 10 years? <laughs> a lot of sex. I might as well talk about it. Don't have any kids, so I'm fucked for that material. But you know, you know what I mean. There's a freedom yeah. that perhaps I wouldn't have found had I not gone there. Sure. That's for me. Yeah, well, I think it's great that those places are there. You probably get those in the clubs in England as well. London would offer that. Um, the but I suppose there's a special energy about the New York clubs, you know, which are. Uh, but you've I, never felt restricted here by your status or your you know your, your fame or that not expectation really. that you're talking no about. i felt excited by it yeah um but never 
I never felt censored by it. Um, do you know, I've often felt uh, maybe a bit restricted doing gigs in England. I feel as if sometimes the English crowds are, not if I'm on tour there, but if I'm doing like spots in a comedy club, I often feel as if the audience can be a little bit racist. Really? Yeah, a little bit. Um, Towards you as an Irishman? Yeah, or? for sure. Right, okay. uh, and, and that just triggers my anti-English racism. So just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which they don't... Doesn't play as well <laughs> in They're, London yeah, as it would when you're in Galway. They don't... It's not... It doesn't have as much of an effect on them <laughs> as their racism <laughs> does on me. Um, but yeah, it's all about like... One of the things I'm really... I, I kind of sense now that if I never toured North America or, or Australia again, I wouldn't mind. I was listening to um, Moby talking recently. Oh, you listen to Donald Scandal's thing? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but I, I did retweet it. Yeah. Um, and Moby says a very interesting thing where he says uh, he was touring. He, he realized at one stage that he was touring to stay relevant. That was the only reason he was touring. So he kind of followed that logic on in his head and he was going... The reason, and he didn't like touring, um, he said, the reason I'm touring is so that I can come back and tour. That was the only reason. So the reason he's doing the thing that he didn't like doing is so that he can... Keep doing the shit that he doesn't like doing. Yeah. Um, and I, I've had, even though the people that I work with in Australia and Canada are great and the audience are fantastic, I've kind of lost my grow for that big style, you know. Um, yeah. Which is so interesting because I've always felt that wherever you went, people tapped into it and they said, we like this guy. But as an exp do you know what I, I've been thinking about it as a cultural thing. I love touring Europe. Um, really exciting. You, the cities and countries are so deep. You know, they're thousands of years old. You're, you feel as if you're walking into a mature culture, you know. That's not settled. That still struggles with stuff. I, I, love, I love the Christian heritage of Europe. Even if you're an atheist, I just love the depth of European culture. Yeah. And I find, I've been thinking about this over the past few days, and it almost seems to me like what happened in North America and in Australia is that those cultures are only two or 300 years old. And they have, like there's a vibrant, dangerous, dark, black culture in Australia that is suppressed. Um, there is a North, it's a North American Indian culture in Canada and the States, which is suppressed. So it's easy to get the sense when you're walking around those, for me, that there's a shallowness to it. And I don't mean the shallowness, a personal shallowness, but cultural shallowness. That it, and I just find it really uninteresting. I find it, it's the victory of white people. Mm. E even though, it, it, like I, one of the lines I have about Australia is, even the brown people are white in Australia. <laughs> it's white culture. Yes, it is, but it's, it is clearly Judeo-Christian. Judeo it's Starbucks corporate uh, goody two-shoes culture. And I, don't, I, I find that, just don't find it interesting. Whereas Europe, to me, just seems even though it is also white culture yeah but there's something genuine uh, yeah it's 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 root deep in europe whereas in america and canada it's only surface stuff yeah it's like a souvenir shop of european culture that's evolved into this american thing 
perfectly put as Bishop. Gee, we should, Tommy, we should do a show together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, but I get so, that. But, but, but so it's touring around Europe, but that, that for you is more about the surroundings as opposed to the actual shows. No, the crowds are interesting too because, um, uh, first of all, they're not used to stand-up. So there's a, bit, there's a bit of a thrill of bringing them something like that. Um, uh, being Irish isn't as important in Europe as it is in England or those other countries. Yes. Because, you know, uh, English people have an image of the, you know, the half-cut Irishman who's great crack and good with words. You know, America does as well and so do Canada and Australia. Yeah. But... You'd and they love it though. It's a, it's a oh for sure. To a degree, it's a, it's a bonus. It's a cultural stereotype, and you kind of you can milk it, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, Estonians have. <laughs> <laughs> you're not. You're. There is. They don't know. We're not entirely sure. Yeah. Where Ireland is, you know. Um, so the so that stereotype doesn't exist, you know. And an Irishman in Paris. People, the French people don't have. I mean, if they think of Irish people, they think of Bono, and maybe I don't even know if they would think of Samuel Beckett. They might think of Oscar Wilde at a stretch, but really, as you, Bono is probably their only reference point. Yeah, you know. Um, In China, it was Michael Flatley. Oh, there you go. How do you work with that? Like, yeah, no, but I mean, but you like gigging there. So you would you I like love, the free, So you like the freedom it. of being a bit more neutral. Yeah, I love it as an identity. Yeah, neutral. A neutral outsider, because we come from an island, off an island, off the coast of Europe. Mm. You know, so we're like, it's like we're a bunch of boggers from Inish Turk. <laughs> when it comes to going to Europe. Yeah. yeah, we're just, and I like that. Um, so if I if I did lots more touring of Europe, I'd be very happy. But I I I wouldn't be bothered if I never went to those other places again. No, not sure. Because I was thinking about. You know, like you get asked a lot about, oh, why do you work so much in Ireland? What about the rest of the world? And you get asked. I know I get asked too. But by who though? I just, I just mean in general, in yeah. random interviews and all these things. But don't you find that no matter where you go in the world, it is the most crack to gig here? Um, yeah, probably. Probably there's an intimacy here and a wildness here, and a familiarity. But you know. I remember I had the realization a few years ago, like I was doing work in America and I was doing work in Canada and Australia and England and Ireland. And you kind of think to yourself, okay, once you've stayed in one really nice hotel room, that's it, that's that done. You've done it. Yeah. And this thing of making it, like I think maybe as you get older, you have that, when you're young, you need that ambitious energy of, status yes. you need that i'm gonna make some sort of an imprint i'm gonna have people look at me i'm gonna have i'm gonna achieve some things and you that's a very natural energy in your teens and 20s and 30s but i think something happens then when you hit your 40s where you kind of go hang on a minute here now this is just uh, i'm just repeating myself in terms of an experience so i'm staying in a nice hotel in new york and next week i'm staying in a nice hotel in melbourne and next week i'm saying but it's the same experience I've achieved that thing. What else? I'm 40. I'm young. I could be alive for another 40 years. What do I want to do? Yeah. So, so what do you want to do? I just want to keep talking. Keep talking. I, I, actually, no, that's a lie. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know. 
uh, I know that I'm delighted to have a friend of mine come up to me a few years ago and he said you're very lucky because you have a platform so you have, you have a place where you can take your ideas there are so many people out there who have ideas and no platform you know they might write something no one's going to read it they might paint something no one's going to look at it they might come up with a song no one is ever going to hear it because they have no audience this guy was saying to me you're lucky you can think of something and you can express it publicly you have an audience who will receive what you say irrespective of whether they like it and he said that's, a, that's an amazing thing to have done so I'm I'm delighted by that I think I'm, but I'm of course the, I, I agree with that but of course not everybody needs that but he's saying you're lucky in the sense that he probably feels like he needs that and, yeah. and I need that like he said you he, would feel like your ideas were a waste of time if you didn't get to share them right for sure or you just get you know you know there are loads of people who write stuff that no one ever reads yeah you know and it's I think to have to have an audience there is um no, nothing ever stays the same. So you're never, you know, you're uh, like I was saying about you know going through two or three months of not feeling great, and then going through two or three months of feeling or feeling good. You know, whatever phase you're in, enjoy it, endure it, but it will change. Mm. Um, so, and then I suppose also there's the practicalities of having to earn a living, and the notion that, uh, which is one that maybe our fathers were a bit more attuned to than we are. We can be sometimes be a little bit spoilt. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Whereas a lot of dads and a lot of people just, they have no choice. Yes. Get up, sign on the dollar line, do your work. Yeah, so it's a privileged existence. Well, no, I was going to say is that sometimes you just you you just slip into neutral, and you kind of go, do you know what? I, irrespective of whether I really want to, or don't want to, I have to. Be on stage and then a skill and slice it there. Well, having a second whack at a family definitely doesn't help the. Uh, Funny, I was thinking about this as well yesterday. Uh, and it was you have six kids, right? Six kids. I was thinking of it in terms of. I can't remember. I was uh, I was having an imaginary conversation with somebody in the car as I was driving from one family to the other. 
going. <laughs> and the uh, it was of the positive effects of long term debt on your creativity. <laughs> That's, that is that is a fucking essay if I ever saw one. How about that for a thesis? That's a TED talk, man. <laughs> <laughs> the positive effects of long-term debt on your creativity. It's like I was a wealthy man, but I needed to return to poverty to fucking get creative. Well, again. I think because you, you know, the to to keep that edge and to keep that hunger, you need pressure. You know, we all know comics. Uh, it's easy to think of of American and English comics who became very famous, became very wealthy, uh, and their standard of stand-up dropped hugely, you know. And I think it's important. I think that the I know looking back on uh, kind of the uh, I have to be successful. I feel that pressure. I feel that financial pressure of. More people are relying on you than just yourself, you mean? Yeah, I have to, I have to, the shows have to be good. You know, I can't just stop working and, and head off to, you know, buy, <laughs> buy a row of houses in Tume <laughs> and settle down. I have to keep working and I have to keep good. So, you know, I've been, even though I've buckled under the pressure of that sometimes, um, I know that it's... Uh, it's been positive in terms of um, the standard of shows where you come off stage going, that's not good enough. Mm. How do I get better for the, yeah, that's so not, you know, that, that feeling of, it's funny cause I don't hear enough. you talk as much about your dad and your mother on stage as you do talk about being a dad. Mm. But I have one memory of an incredible joke. I don't know if it was appreciated by everybody, but it was very deeply appreciated by me. I'm paraphrasing. But it was something along the lines of telling your dad that you love him. And he said, you have to fucking ruin everything, don't you? Like it was some <laughs> tender moment. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'm sure it wasn't a direct quote, but I just thought it was a lovely moment of Irish affection. Well, the, 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 okay, that was a, yeah, well, that actually I, I, I should I should have just let you tell the story. No, no, I, it's from, I remember it because the, uh, the, the, f that was the feeling. The feeling was, just when we were having a bit of crack, Tom, you said something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that was the feeling. But the actuality of what happened was, uh, he said, sure, why wouldn't you? Oh, right. That was the feeling. Uh, that was their actuality. Oh, he right. actually said, sure, why wouldn't you? Which I, yeah. I still think is quite yeah. Irish. Uh, but that, My mother would respond in that it, way. Really? But the the, def the feeling I came away with was, you know, you are no crack. <laughs> <laughs> that was understood. It didn't need to be fucking said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are you, are you more like your dad in that way with your own kids? Or are you a more sort of modern dad? It's a constant negotiation. Constant. You never feel I never feel uh, I always feel as if the ground is shifting beneath me there's no I don't feel grounded with them I don't feel um, you know we're the first generation really I think to be dealing with uh, separation and divorce in terms of our kids you know our the generation before us 
maybe not so much in America, but definitely in Ireland. No, in Ireland for sure, yeah. Was just like, you know, link arms and... You know, Suffer it. <laughs> you just get on with it, dude. Yeah. You don't... Uh, uh, yeah, there's no get out. There's, there's, no, no, there's, no, no, there's no get out. So you yeah. put up with it. So a lot of people would have grown up with their seeing their parents like that and kind of going, you know, why don't you guys just get a divorce? This is ridiculous. Well, they couldn't. Why don't you guys just not live together? So we grew up almost fantasizing, especially those who of us who came from, you know, uh, hard houses. Um, was God Almighty. I think we kind of fantasized about divorce in a way, you know, um, but we don't have any experience of being the children of divorced people or of nurturing children through a divorce. Um, so I think it would, that was, that's something that uh, I think has unsettled a lot of people in that they're not quite sure once that situation happens. First of all, they might go into it too quickly, into that situation too quickly. And then once they're in it, they mightn't, be able to tell their arse and their elbow in terms of how to behave. Whereas cultures, if you go way back in Irish history, like in Irish folklore, divorce was one of the mill. People were often reared by stepfathers or they were went to live with other people. You know, you could have more than one marriage, you know. Um, in other cultures, America is probably much more used to it. But like in terms of Irish people, in are. terms of you, you, you feel like you can be just as good a dad though in that situation, or Not because really, you, because no, because no, you're the first no. generation, do you feel still a bit of guilt or something like you oh, doing totally, something yeah, wrong? Totally, yeah, totally. I don't feel as if uh, I would have no uh, confidence in myself as a father. You know, you kind of it's a constant, um, uh, like I said, a constant negotiation. It's a constant, how do I play this? How do I play that? You know, how do I? Plus the fact that when I'm, I'm on the road three days a week, so I I always feel under pressure in terms of my kids' time. Yeah. That when I'm at home, okay, there's six of them. How do I uh, cement uh, or how do I, uh, how do I negotiate this? You know, I, if I can't do it in neutral, you have to make an effort to kind of engage with them all, you know, what are they looking for? What do they need? So I wouldn't say there's any sh uh, surety at all. Yeah. But, you know, that's the reality of it, you know. Um, that's, uh, and my kids will, you know, they'll have, uh, I know, I remember I was talking to a woman one time and she was saying that part of parenting is the creation of memories for your children. That's all you're doing. She was saying, it's just you're creating memories that they can draw on when they're older. So the more good memories, they're all they're going to have bad memories. They're going to have bad memories you can't even remember. They're going to make up bad memories as well. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to invent shit just to get revenge. Stuff that couldn't possibly have fucking happened, but they remember. Um, uh, so I know, I know that my kids definitely have that. that there's definitely been a huge effort on my part. To where we we I know with all of them there's they'll have great memories yeah you know which helps me uh, sleep at night <laughs> but, anyway, but that's yeah, great because you know it's funny you should say that because I I look at a lot of my friends the way they raise their kids I look at my brother the way he raises his kids and I have to say when I compare it to my own childhood I go 
this is better. <laughs> this is better than what we had. And you've put it well about the memories. Yeah. Because for me, don't get me wrong, like I'm fine. But there's not as many good memories as there should be in terms of like yeah. more stress and anxiety. Yeah. And I think that might be generational a bit too, you know, like a, of a different Yeah, and time. maybe then we, then we come at our kids, you know, slightly more uh, needy than they are of us, you know? Like, uh, it's a constant negotiation. It's never, it's, it's never, it's never the finished product. Yeah, I mean, it's given, know. it's pros and cons. I get it because we, I, well, I, we grew up in a freer time, I feel like, for young people. So for those, me those memories are amazing, you know, but then for the parenting memories, it's a bit more like crack the whip stuff, you know? Yeah, or just, you know, how to cope with being ignored. <laughs> <laughs> That's a name. That's a good name of a show. How to cope with being ignored. So, um, and it's a show you do with your back to the audience, <laughs> <laughs> like pre-Vatican II match. <laughs> yeah, but you like? Do Do you reckon? Because so you have a you have a first cousin who's a great comic, yeah, kind of dark. Yeah. You have a sister who's like she was actress, right? Like a Neve, yeah, 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 for sure. Like you've got a lot of art. I've met your brother. He, you know, he, he's his own man, but he also had like a bit of a depth or there was an intensity there. D do you think that's more like a genetic thing or do you think there was something going on at home that was driving you guys to search? Uh, I, I think that's, um, and of course, Ellen is your first cousin. I know, but what I mean is like, is there something in the tearing and jeans that's crying out for, yeah, but never to the extent where anybody's made it before. Right, okay. So I would have, uh, my uncle would have been a short story writer, had stuff published in magazines. Um, my aunt would also have been uh, a short story writer and a playwright. I have an uncle, another uncle who's a playwright. But it was all b just kind of below the parapet in terms of acclamation. Um, and... I'm not sure how far you have to go in any Irish family for that, really. Hmm. But, but, but when you started journeying this way, nobody was going, what the fuck are you at? No, I, it, was, it, was, it was one of the benefits of being ignored. Like my family, my first family, you know, my, my father and my mother, they lived on the East Coast, okay? Uh, they had three other children to mind, younger children. I left home and came west. So, you know, I was out of their hair. I was just in Galway, other side of the country, getting £35 a week dole, phoned home once every month or something like that. Do your own thing. Mm. Uh, it would be much more difficult if I was living in Navan, getting up out of bed at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the family house, staying getting up till judged. Yeah, getting judged. You know, yeah, staying up till 4 o'clock in the morning. Much more difficult. So I never had a sense of um, uh, letting people down never had a sense of pressure on me uh, to do anything Ex uh, I came here and I was fortunate that whenever it, it, I think we all have a kind of an internal uh, ambition that our parents can kind of go, oh, he's a waster, he's doing nothing, what is he at? But if you leave the kid alone, that comes out, that ambition comes out. And I was just away, that just happened to me. I had my first kid when I was 24. Started doing stand-up when I was about 24, 25. And 
these natural this natural energy for work this uh natural desire to succeed i didn't have didn't need people saying you better do something with your yeah. life just arose naturally yeah but nobody had seen that when you were younger right nobody had said this guy's super motivated or anything right not in the slightest yeah because i was bored because i wasn't because yeah. i wasn't motivated by anything that i saw around me you know what what was i being offered when i was a kid in school i was being offered uh here study well and you know you can go to university and i, I didn't want any of that so I, yeah. I was in collision with my environment when i was young i was in collision with them at home they were in collision with each other everybody was in collision <laughs> And, and I just got out of that house as soon as I could, came west. And Galway was, I mean, Galway is perfect for people who want to do very little. <laughs> yeah. It really is. And one of the reasons is because there are lots of other people in Galway doing very little. So you have a huge student population uh, surviving on very little money. And you have a huge, you had a, back in those days, a huge unemployed population. And from that those un from the unemployed and the students, people surviving on 30, 40 pound a week with very little to do during the day came uh, the whole, the kind of art scene that Galway has now capitalized on for the 2020 thing. Yeah. You know. Um, but in a way, it was a load of refugees from those collisions that you're talking about, don't you sure. think? Eight, you know, the end of the 80s, people are moving away from this oppressive thing and then boom, the explosion of creativity happens. I, I think to a degree. Yeah, but it, it, it was also with the freedom to do it. Yeah. You know, with the freedom and the poverty to do it. We had nothing to do all day except what we do. I don't know. Let's, we want to play. Okay. And you had to have six kids to recreate. <laughs> that pressure. Six kids to recreate the poverty. Um, so before, so. I was just going to say, before we finish up, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the, the chat show. Oh, yeah. Only because it was great. I mean, Thank I you. tweeted straight away. Like, who would have thunk it? A comedian doing a chat show. Like, how fucking long did it take for them to just say, well, why don't you get a comedian who's comfortable chatting and comfortable not knowing what's going to happen? Yeah. Talking to another person. What was the motivation for you? Uh, was it more the, the, I don't like call it gimmick, but it was more the, the, the style of it? Or was it more the, just the chats? The motivation was, I think, uh, part of it was the, that, the idea of playing. So we, we get into stand-up, first of all, for the, there's a few things, for the attention, because we have a sense of humor, and for the recklessness that stand-up offers us in terms of playing, saying things. Stand-up gives you a kind of a carte blanche to do whatever, say whatever you want. It doesn't need to be thought out and figured out like a novel. It doesn't need to hang together structurally like a play. It can be a sentence, an idea. It's more like poetry in that way. Just fire it out. So we get into stand-up, you know, for these reasons. And for the excitement of it, you know, it's, it's our version of rock and roll. You know, it's exciting. And uh, it's that notion of playing with things. Like, I get just as much a kick out of being funny in conversation mm. as I do being funny on stage. It's such a thrill and a release, you know. Um... David Letterman was, uh, I just thought his ability to be funny and be, to be a messer. Out of nothing, yeah. I thought it was really, really warm and lovely. And, you know, sometimes you get into a habit as a comic of you get your show together and you just repeat it night after night. And you just, you know, it's, it's more acting than stand-up. You know, the kind of, I kind of feel as if 
there should be constant creativity in your stand-up. You might get that in performing the bits different ways or doing them in a different order. But So I was looking for that, and with the improvised tour of Europe, before I, before I started doing the improvised shows, I was thinking, this will give me the opportunity to play. I'll be playing with things again, because it's, I'm not playing enough. Now, the improvised show didn't offer me that. What I realised was that's like sending a kid into a room and giving him no toys and telling him to play. And he plays with his imagination. Yeah, but and you that, need somebody else. Yeah, so you play with your imagination, right? <laughs> and that works down for a day or two. But day four, you're kind of chewing your upper lip and kind of going, <laughs> you're going to be crazy banging your head off a wall. Um, now, that's, a, that's definitely a worthwhile experiment to do, that, those kind of improvised shows. They're, they're you know, uh, the fruits of it mightn't be apparent immediately, but it's definitely worth doing. Yeah. Um, well, it's also, it's good to find out what's missing like it's good to find out why why does this not work? Yeah, These are sure. the things that are missing. Yeah, yeah. But a person the, to play off is definitely one of them. Yeah. No, no. But I mean, that's yeah, what, that's what sure. works with the chat show. It, it was a kind of a continuation of it, which was that I thought that an interview off the cuff with somebody I wasn't expecting, who mightn't know, or I might only know one or two things about, would give me that thing of playing. You know, with with things and kind of and that thing of being funny in the moment which I think is um, you know when you like when you come up with a joke or come up with a routine part of you is, wants to hang on to it you know and you say oh I don't really want to do it on TV you know it might be only like a, a two line joke oh god yeah I gotta, I've had the joke for a year and a half now it's really working out well for me and you kind of cling on to it uh, uh, kind of more desperately than you should you come up with something funny in conversation Something just as funny as a joke that you've written, it rises and it falls and it's gone. And it's gone. Oh, it was funny. So that was part of the thing with the chat show as well of that just natural, say something funny, then it's gone. But you were funny, you know? So so was the funny more the motivation than the sort of conversation side? Like, don't get me wrong, I know the funniness is coming from the conversation, but were you hoping more for the crack or were you thinking sometimes we'll get to some other place? Um, I've always kind of felt slightly guilty of, um, and I don't, I don't, I haven't even resolved it totally, which is the notion of, uh, the, you've been given a platform because you're funny, uh, don't recite sad poetry <laughs> when you're up there. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of a, there's a contract between you and the audience, which is you're here cause you're funny. Do whatever you want, as long as you're funny, you know. So um, I still haven't fully negotiated the that it's up to me. If I decide not to be funny, I'm not going to be funny. I, I do feel as if there's a, an honourable contract which has been drawn up between... Um, like, I remember when, remember when Lenny Henry started acting. He, he, Lenny Henry did Othello and King Lear. And I remember thinking... I remember not being comfortable with that. Right. I remember kind of going, he can't do that. You know. Um, so what about I, Tom Hanks doing Philadelphia? Was he, was he not, was he a stand-up before he was? Yeah. Was he? No, he yeah. wasn't. He, damn right Tom Hanks was a stand-up, yeah. No, 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 he was in Punchline, that movie with Sally No, Fields. no, 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 no. Tom Hanks is from the late 70s stand-up. Really? Yeah, and, and Jim Carrey is from stand-up. Yeah, well, 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 maybe, well, well. No, I mean, those are just different examples. Yeah, but I mean, I think that the, when you experience it, experience it from another person, 
you it probably doesn't bother you at all. Like Billy Connolly was brilliant in that movie Mrs. Brown uh, with Judy Dench. Um, but I've always felt a bit slow to be serious. Right, 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 right. Because I kind of felt that's not that's not the you know it's like you don't hire a you don't you know someone doesn't get put onto the Kilkenny senior hurling team. <laughs> you know, and instead at the start of the match, and he, you know, he runs out with a tennis racket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're there to do a particular job, and I, yeah. I, I'm still, I'm not entirely sure. So, in terms of the serious bits of the conversation that came up, I, I, I'm really careful that that doesn't become indulgent. Yeah. And that, but 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 I think it's good. Yeah, but also that the pressure to be funny. isn't necessarily always a bad pressure. Now, you don't want to turn into an idiot. Yeah, you don't want to, be, you don't want to be flippant. on and always trying too hard. Um, but the relief when that pressure isn't there, I'm not sure is a good thing. Mm. Um, and I, so I think that if you're not being funny, it's beholden on you then to be something else. You better, you better be interesting. You better be really sad. <laughs> there better be something happening if you're not being funny. If you're not being funny and just coasting it, I'm not sure that you should be there. No, but I don't think the funniness always moves you away from a moment of like sadness or compassion or like finding something out from somebody that you wouldn't have found. I don't think the yeah. funniness always moves you away from that. No, but I'm 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 just telling you like the internal, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, no, the, I just the, I, the opera between your own ears is always you no, know. No, because the only louder. thought the only thought that I had because I, I I like the premise of like not knowing, mm. but then there was another part of me that was going. But Tommy's such a great interviewer, and he's such a a great person to chat with. Wouldn't you sometimes wish that you could have known a few so that you could have done a bit of research and and gone down some roads that perhaps you didn't know to go down. But but you end up going down a road anyway. Yeah, a road, yeah. A road. Now, maybe there's better roads, but... No, no, no. I'm just curious. Did yeah, you have no, that thought? No, not at all. I think not it, at all. I think if it just happens... I think you'd have too much... I think you have too much in your mind. First of all, because of the nature of it, whatever road opens is the road you go down. And you have to go down it because there's nothing else to do. So if I have a list of questions and something that... And it, I just feel as if the uh, spontaneous wandering is as worthwhile as the kind of the preordained um, route. Yes. You know, uh, and some of the interviews I don't were really hard work because I was going, I talked to this person about, uh, and some of them just people just opened up a door and you walked into that room mm. for a while and then they opened up another door and you just you kind of followed them you know I say it was one of the ones with Joanne McNally mm. who, I've interviewed her too you know I just followed wherever she went but she's got those sto- I mean you know that she's a I actually consider her to be a perfect guest and, she, and this is not not to be patronizing but not only is she super funny and engaging, but she's also talking about stuff that's hard to talk about. Yeah. And and it, it's really easy to take it in the way that she tells it. Fantastic, you know, so... Um, yeah, so stuff like that is great, but so how much do you feel is down to the guests? Oh, totally. Because it's... Totally. 
they have to be you know th they have to be able to chat and they have to be I, I don't know what I don't know what uh, manifesto they have walking on or I don't know what their agenda is or but for them to be contacted by the show given the premise of it and to be told he mightn't know who you are. Yeah, they have to be willing to they give. Have to be, they're going to go, yeah, okay, let's do it anyway. Yeah, and they have to be smart too, right? They have to say, what do I want to get out there? I don't mean what do I want to get out there selling my shit, but yeah. how do I want to sell myself as a, as a guest? How, how, how am I going to be the best participant in this show? Yeah. If they don't think that at all, then it's not a great guest. Well, the thing is, if, you, if you're thinking about how do I sell myself on this or how do I create the best impression, I'm, I wonder, is there too much of... I think your volunteering to go out there does that. I think there's too much of an unknown to, 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 to for, overthink it for them to be able to control that for them to be able to say I want to make this impression because they just first of all the host might have a reputation for being slightly off the wall and a bit mental and they're kind of going this could go anywhere this guy might just take the piss out of me completely you know so I think they're walking out from behind the wall that's them presenting themselves what happens after that is it's too unpredictable yeah. for them to be able to And it's to as much about them marshal. as it is about you, right? The journey, the dance back and forth is a huge part of it. It's, I think it's, I'm totally playing with whatever they give me. Yeah. You know, the only thing I asked before the show started was no comedians and nobody I know. Oh, but you did Russell Howard, don't know. Yeah. Um, and my, my worry about that was I remember doing, I did a chat show years ago with Frank Skinner. And I remember thinking, the two of us are trying to be funny here. Mm. It's not working. One of us needs to be the straight man, you know, and he's the host. So I, I was kind of thinking, Frank, it needs it to be It should have been him, yeah. Yeah. So when the problem was, something would open up a conversation. And I would know what Frank was doing with it, where he was going to sure, go with yeah. it. You get used to the machinations of it. And I was going, why, why am I here? You know, that's fine if you're st if you're if someone's straight. No, I find straight. that tough too. Yeah, sometimes somebody has to take the role of the straight man. Kind of, you know, or if or, or parries back and forth. But that is the skill that like Letterman had. That is the skill that a lot of those guys have. Is there's a time and a place to be funny. You're yeah. funny when you're talking to the 22 year old hottie from the latest Transformers movie. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, you keep lively, and I guess you play the role of the straight man when you're talking to Steve Martin. Like, you know. Sure. Yeah. You know, I guess. Yeah. I always. Could uh, you be the straight man? Well, I've been the straight man yeah, on, yeah, on a yeah. TV show for sure. Um, but that, I was very aware of that with Russell, actually. Uh, that interview was good. Well, I, well, I absolutely. I, the anecdotes came out great, and I was really, I was really sensitive to that. It, it, I felt very sensitive to it. Like, you got to give this guy room to spread his wings. You got to just Jerry Mann language. You know, you got to don't be afraid <laughs> to spread your wings. Huh? <laughs> you got to chip the ball and let him volley it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, rather than it being come like on say mock the week or one of those kind of oh yeah just everyone fight <laughs> to get in <laughs> i know shows which know. is fine people like them you know um but there's no soul well you know i i just thought that that there were there was only two things i asked for and i my fear if i knew somebody would be that it just wouldn't i i don't know that the conversation just wouldn't might be wrong if you walk yeah. around the corner isn't as bishop you know 
we'd have to go with whatever came up with that. Whatever came up, yeah. That. Well, I guess next year, you can have a think about it next year for if you want to get one or two people you know, because it's a different type of chat, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's edited as well is good. It's not Helps, live. yeah. No, I, listen, I, 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 had, I had jokes in my previous show about the... I, I wasn't sticking up for Tuberty per se, but I was saying, yeah. like, you realize this guy's not getting any editing. Yeah. You know, Norton's getting editing with the best for guests sure. in the world. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. easy to be a genius when you're cutting out all the shit bits. Yeah, for sure. You know? So, I mean, that's it, really. I mean, I, was, I, I mentioned the word soul there. If anybody ever said to me, what do you think Tommy Tiernan's bag is? I'd say he's looking for the fucking soul in everything that he does. I, I, yeah. I, do you think you're the most, you know, you're, you're the comedian that sort of tries to stay close to that as much as possible? No, I think, it's too, I think it's too instinctive. It's too desperate a situation. It's, it's like drowning and someone says to you, you know, you do anything to stay afloat. You know, uh, if someone suggests to you in that moment some beautiful synchronized swimming movements, some pirouettes in the water, you, I, I honestly think that stand-up is too... Uh, things come out because you, I th you ultimately you get revealed, maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, but it's too desperate a situation. It's too difficult to... I think if you're trying to be soulful... Yeah. It come across as No, but I think it's instinct. It's innate in Yeah, you. it just uh, well, you know, so is the desperation though, yeah. to be honest with you. Like and All so right, dismiss this. This was the thought I had this morning. I was just thinking I wasn't thinking about questions, I was just thinking what we were chatting about. And I was thinking about I'm always seen as the outsider, you know, and that gives you a that gives you a point of view, which is I only think is fifty percent true. I think fifty percent is people just hear my accent and think I'm the outsider. But anyway, I understand you see things a different way. So I was thinking about you in contrast and I was going, Well, is Tommy the insider? Or I was actually thinking, you're so far the other side of the outsider that you're so in, you're so deep that actually you're seeing things about Ireland that even Irish people would never see about themselves, but you're seeing it from a completely different side that I do. So you're almost like an outsider from the deeper side, if you get what I mean. I don't feel as if I belong. I think my... Uh, I think there's that third thing that's created... We talking about earlier on. Um, there's the performer, there's the audience, and then there's this third thing, which is the show. Um, I'm not on stage. I'm I'm not who I am off stage. So uh, I am much more of an outsider off stage. I'm quite socially shy. Probably I'm quite um, introverted. Probably I'm periods of a lot of solitude. Mightn't be that chatty or social, you know. I've, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a best friend. Um, and I, uh, so I, I do feel outside of things. My my childhood was very much one. So I lived in Donegal for three years and then I lived in Africa for three years and then I lived in London for a while and then Athlone and then Nav and then I got moved to Ballinasloe and then I moved to Galway. Um, and uh, so I've always been kind of outside the group. Right. You know, I've never really, uh, even in Navin, I, I was part of the group but I wasn't. I was from the others, the people I, were, I was hanging around with, I was from the other side of the river and from the, one of the new housing estates. Um, so I ha have that sense 
of not belonging. But when I'm on stage, I have a I have a definite feeling of not speaking for the tribe, but of almost being a funnel of energies or something, or that you gather up spirits from the room and they all come out through your mouth yeah. or something. But it's not, I don't live there. Sure. And that only happens. And it, it probably the fact that I'm, you know, I travel by myself. I don't hang out with other people too much. That maybe gives me the leverage to be in a situation to create. Yeah, like you're a conduit for everyone's understanding of or themselves. But you're, but you're, nothing is ever definite and nothing can ever be defined. But I would say, definitely say I'm an outsider. I think that thing, the phrase came up is very good. I'm an outsider on the inside. Yeah, sure. like you're looking in from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, but but it works though, doesn't it? That's the thing it's about the... Contrived, so it's not contrived. No, it's, I, it's I, not, definitely I don't think it's contrived. It's I think it's completely natural. Yeah. And that's clear. I, no, I, if anybody ever said it's clear what Tommy Tiernan is doing is contrived, yeah. then they have not watched your fucking shows. But I think there is something in that, that somehow you become this conduit. Whatever that experience is, your experience, their experience, it brings it together. You bring that out. That is something special. It's almost like... Because I'm an outsider, I'm looking for union. Uh, the audience come to hear something expressed. And those two desires create this third thing, mm. which is the, the man on stage doing, doing yeah, the show. the show. But it's, I have, it's, my, it's my desire to connect is their desire to hear themselves expressed in a humorous way and those two things kind of marry each other and this third yeah. thing happens plus you just have an under you you have other skills in terms of your you're able to articulate it you're able sure. to understand ah, yeah, yeah. them and, no yeah. i think that's great I, I i was just curious if you if you would agree with that because i was curious of trying to figure out what makes it special you know? it doesn't guarantee it's going to go i mean we all go through phases where our no, but shows are... you're doing are, it for fucking 20-something years. There's yeah, been plenty of magic moments. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I remember with, uh, when at the end of Dave Letterman's thing, he was going, uh, so thank you for the, the last show, you know. So thank you so much, everybody. You know, we've done uh, 4,314 shows. And the audience burst into applause. And he goes, they haven't all been great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, there you go, man. Well, anyway, that's it, Tommy. I won't hold on you. That note. I'll let you go to Enniskillen. We talked for an hour and ten minutes, so thank Pleasure you, Tommy. Pleasure to be always. Shaking hands on the mic. So, thanks very much to Tommy, and thanks very much to you guys for sticking with me, and thanks to all those people who kept bothering me on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. Where are the podcast des? Because if it wasn't for you guys, I might have let it slip even longer. So thank you guys for the pressure. Got some more coming up. Uh, I haven't arranged dates yet, but Paul Howard had said he'll have a chat of Russell Carroll Kelly fame. Allison Spittle's going to have a chat. And then, uh, coming up in late March, April, I'll be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So then, we will be getting loads of podcasts because I'll have access to tons of comedians and tons of time. Also, uh, my tour continues, the One Day You'll Understand tour. Uh, I am in Cavan this week and Kilkenny and Waterford, Vicker Street soon, Tullamore, 
uh, Maynooth, a few other spots. Do check it out. Go to desbishop.net. And, um, yeah, tour's been going great. Uh, So I look forward to that as well. So stay tuned, guys. Spread the word. At Des Bishop on Twitter, Des Buffer on Snapchat, Des Bishop on Instagram, and uh, Facebook.com forward slash Des Bishop. Spread the word. Give us some likes. And uh, again, apologies for the delay. Talk to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.